the main test. It's really whether there's a consumer contract or small business contract in place. If there is, whether it's standard form, that will then get you within the protection regime. And then the question is looking at the particular terms that are in that standard form contract. Are they unfair? And that's by reference to the three-limb test. You know, was there a significant imbalance in the rights and obligations of the parties? Was the term not reasonably necessary to protect the legitimate interests of the business looking to rely on it? And would the term cause detriment, either financial or non-financial, to a party if it was relied on? You are listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 302 of Text Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. Over the next two episodes, let's look at unfair contract terms. Simone Daniels of Andrea F. Lawyers in Sydney will walk you through the history and setup of the unfair contract term provisions. What are they? When do they apply? And how do they work? My first question to Simone is whether unfair contract terms is something that comes up a lot in Simon's work as a contract lawyer. It's funny that you asked that question to start with because as I was reflecting on, you know, this topic and where we go with it, I was trying to come up with some really useful practical examples of where it's come up in practice for us. Obviously, being contract lawyers and helping clients negotiate and document deals that they do with other businesses or other individuals, you would think that this comes up a lot. But I was finding it quite hard to come up with some practical examples of where this legislation, being the unfair contract terms legislation, has actually come up in practice. And I think that there's a few reasons for that, which we'll, we can certainly get into as we step through, you know, what the legislation is and what it's there for. But I think why it hasn't come up so much in practice for us is that what it's really trying to tackle is unfair contract terms that come up in the course of what's called standard form contracts. So they're the very uh, vanilla type contracts that a often a large business, but sometimes smaller businesses will have pre-printed. It's just a case of filling out a form with some party details and they hand it over to you and it's a sort of take it or leave it type basis. And it would include things like contracts that you enter into online by clicking through. And I guess, yeah, why it hasn't come up so much for us in practice is that often we're dealing with clients that are actually negotiating terms and trying to get the deal to reflect exactly what they've agreed with the other party. They're not often coming to us for advice on how to document a deal that is a standard form contract. But having said that, it's also it's, it has come up from the perspective of when we are helping our clients put contract terms in place with their customers. We've definitely had to keep that in mind that they don't want to run foul of the, the legislation in this area because it'll effectively mean that their contract is void. So unfair contract terms isn't so much an issue when both parties are negotiating because there's an understanding that both parties could walk away from the deal if it's not beneficial to them. It's more relevant for standard format contracts and they're it probably doesn't lead to so many cases because just the pure presence of unfair contract term rules already makes everybody comply with those rules and hence most standard format contracts 
are not unfair, hence it hasn't come up? Well, you would hope so. I'm not sure if that is the actual case. And we could talk through how the legislation is set out as we get into this. But what the current legislation doesn't have is any sort of penalty type provisions where really if a term in a contract is unfair, the only way you're really going to get to the bottom of that is if someone puts up their hand and tries to get a court to agree with them. That means the unfair contract rules are kind of there and if you're a good business person then you try to comply with them. But if you ignore them, then there isn't really anything to stop you from that because the other parties to these contracts are usually small, many small consumers who are unlikely go to go to court because to push these unfair contract rules through, you have to go to court and a small consumer is unlikely to do that. Yes. I guess the other way that the legislation is enforced is if the regulator being the, in for the most part, the ACCC, so the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, whether there, there's sufficient I guess if there's a sufficient mandate for them to take a particular business on because they've received a whole volume of complaints about these terms, then they may well be encouraged to enforce against that business that's using the unfair terms. And the way that that's then played out in the courts is that the ACCC will bring an action. They'll allege that certain terms are unfair. The court will either agree or disagree with them. If the court agrees, then the court will make a declaration that the terms are unfair and therefore, therefore void and unenforceable. And what's been recently happening is that the ACCC has then also been seeking a non-party redress order, which allows the court to basically make an order that the offending business, in a recent case, they've had to trawl through their records, identify which customers have basically been affected by these terms and then have had to compensate them or, you know, offer a refund or do something else to redress the terms that have been in place and that the, the customers have been, sorry, I've just lost the word, <laughs> they've been disadvantaged by, basically. So that means there aren't really any damages to be paid when there's an unfair contract. The worst that can happen is that the contract is void and you always have to go to court. In the worst case scenario, you have to go yourself. In the best case scenario, you have the ACCC backing you and basically running the court case for you. Yeah, I think, you know, the reality of actually going through a formal process to enforce this legislation is probably out of the reach of most small businesses and consumers, which the legislation is ideally there to protect. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly come up when we've um, reviewed some contracts, uh, you know, we've given the advice to clients that, look, these terms that you're being offered by this business, they're probably, they probably wouldn't stand up if it was ever challenged. And then it's up to the client to decide whether they're going to actually try and negotiate those terms or whether they're just happy to wear that risk, you know, the risk that it will ever come up in, in practice. What I found in a lot of situations is that the client just really wants the goods or services that are on the table and they, they do want to go ahead with the contract and it's not an absolute deal breaker and they're prepared to wear the risk um, that it will ever come up in practice and have it sort of up their sleeve that potentially they can pull out the unfair contract terms legislation as a means to getting around that particular provision if it ever comes up in practice. Well, if it's okay, I might just um, go back right back to basics before we get into where we are today, because there's a little bit of a backstory to how we've ended up 
where we are. It's really important before we even look at the legislation to really get back to the basics on what contract, what a contract is for a start and what contract law has historically been there, what its function is, what function it performs. So most of your listeners would hopefully be aware, but in case they're not, a contract is basically an expression of the joint will of particular parties to a transaction. It's basically two parties having the freedom to come together and make their own set of private laws about how they're going to interact with each other. So that's sort of distinct from the sort of public law type space. It's, it's sort of like a form of private law that they're creating when they form a contract. So that's all underpinned by this notion that, and, you know, it goes back to the sort of society that we live in, and that's that contracting parties have the freedom to enter into whatever deal they, they want to, basically. They've got the freedom of contract. And really it's just the function of contract law historically to facilitate that process. So facilitate the parties exercising that freedom and having autonomy to do that. And that that goes to the heart of our sort of our free market economic theory and, you know, all the liberal political theories that underpin our society. So the, the function of contract law is then to preserve the integrity of the process that the parties go through to reach a meeting of the minds and formulate a contract. It's not really, historically, it hasn't been about trying to stipulate what terms must be in there or anything like that. It's as long as a particular process has been followed and there's particular aspects that have gone into the process to make that contract, then really the parties can do what they want. They don't, it's not, it's not up for the legislators to intervene in that that sphere. So the main elements that need to be present for a contract to be formed is the concept of offer and acceptance. Someone offers something, someone accepts it. They've got the capacity to accept it. So they are of the appropriate age and other capacity factors. The contract is legal. So it doesn't breach anything else that, you know, would mean that it's uh, yeah, it's not you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's consideration passing. So there's a, a, the concept of this for that. So, you know, you're giving me this and I'm giving you that in return. There's certainty or mutuality. So there's a certain um, meeting of the minds that's taken place such that you can work out exactly what the deal is. And then so long as those things are, are present, it, the contract is formed and it can only be avoided if something else has been present in that process to invalidate what's then occurred. So that's what we call vitiating factors. And that can be things like duress. There's a particular um, party to the contract has exercised undue influence or, or something like that. So, and there's a, a range of things that can sort of then invalidate that contract. So that's sort of the basics of contract law. And that's where contract law has historically just sat. And that's the function that it's performed. I guess what has happened in recent years with this unfair contracts legislation is that this is to some extent an imposition on what is otherwise left to the transacting parties to resolve between themselves. So legislation has been brought into effect that actually now start playing in that area that previously legislation hasn't. So the unfair contract terms legislation, coming back to your original question, there really wasn't anything around the place until probably 
well, it started in 1974, the Trade Practices Act was brought in, in Australia, and that sort of started setting out some concepts to do with how businesses interact with their consumers. And there was, it ran in tandem with other state and territory fair trading acts. So there was the Commonwealth Trade Trade Practices Act and also the State Fair Trading Acts. And really things that those acts dealt with, sort of three limbs of consumer policy. So it's sort of prohibitions on certain types of conduct. So that's the misleading and deceptive conduct type provisions, the unconscionability provisions and other types of conduct. They're probably the big ticket ones. It, those acts also imposed certain non-excludable terms into consumer contracts. So that's things like warranties as to the product is fit for purpose or of a merchantable quality, that sort of thing. And the third limb is certain product safety type requirements and product information that businesses have to give consumers about products that they're selling. And so that was the, the main three areas that those acts dealt with. In 2003, the Victorian Act, so that's the state-based act, introduced a, the concept of unfair contract terms, and they just had that applicable in that state, didn't apply elsewhere. And from what I can gather, I think it applied more broadly than to standard form contracts. I think it applied to a range of different contracts. That was the, the situation. Then in 2008, the Productivity Commission released a report called uh, the a Review of Australia's Consumer Policy Framework. And so that was, I believe it was sort of instigated because it was recognised that really there was a little bit of a hodgepodge of policy going on and different terms applying in different states and duplicity of regulators doing the same things. It was all a little bit confusing. So anyway, the Productivity Commission released a very long report. I've just had a look at it. It's 527 pages long to be exact. So it's a bit of a whopper. And in which and year was that? That was 2008. And it really was looking at how can we make consumer policy work better in Australia? And it wasn't just focusing on unfair contract terms. That's an aspect of consumer policy. It was looking at the whole framework and how they can, how it can work better in Australia as a whole. And there were quite a few recommendations that came out of that report. One of them being that the framework moved to a more at the federal level so that it's uh, consistent across Australia rather than the situation where there was different rules in different states. Quite a few of those recommendations that came out of that report taken on board. And one of the recommendations was to introduce unfair contract terms as a, a part of the consumer policy toolbox if you like, into the legislation. At state level. So the uh, the productivity report was produced at federal level, but then it recommended that each state and territory introduces unfair contract terms into their state legislation. Effectively, that's what it was recommending. And the way that that then played out in practice is that in the following year, 2009, all of the ministers for consumer affairs got together. These are the state ministers and territory ministers, and they agreed, or most of them agreed, that they were going to effectively refer all of their powers in this space to the Commonwealth and introduce legislation in each of the states that was going to be uniform across the country. And that's, that's a great idea. Yes. Well, it, it makes sense, especially in a situation where our modern society, it's very rare for businesses just to be operating in one state alone. And so to be able to navigate different rules across a variety of different states was going to be increasingly difficult. 
with the way that the, the market is operating. So they all agreed, the ministers all agreed that that was a good idea, which then led to an overhaul of the existing Trade Practices Act. And it was renamed in 2010 to the Competition and Consumer Act. And as part of that act, there was a Schedule 2 put right at the back of it, and that's called the Australian Consumer Law. Then, once that was put into the Act, the various states then enacted legislation in their own territories to basically refer powers. And so if you look at the state acts now, it's all referencing that Commonwealth legislation and the rules that apply there. And all eight states and territories deferred their powers to the uh, Competition and Consumer Act. So that means we have unfair contract terms coming through a federal law. That's right, yeah. And the main regulator that is empowered to monitor whether that, that act is operating appropriately and people are complying with it is the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. Having said that, I think from what I can gather, quite a few of the state and territory fair trading type departments, they still sort of cooperate and interact with the ACCC, so they might still collect complaints And either, I'm not sure that they've all referred their enforcement powers to ACCC. They may still have, some of them may still have retained some enforcement powers, but for the most part, it will all regulated and enforced by the ACCC. So that means if the ACCC doesn't act, then the state can still act. Yeah, I think it may be, in some states, it may be different between other states. So I wouldn't want to say a blanket that that's how it applies. <laughs> okay, good. So we think, we think that it's like that. Yeah. So I guess then the question is, if we're sort of focusing, so we know that there's now a sort of a schedule which sets out all of the rules about Australian consumer law, Schedule 2. One aspect of that is the introduction of these unfair contract terms provisions. So the question then is, what did that look like when it was first brought in in 2010? What it looked like was that if there was a consumer contract that was standard form and had terms in it that were considered to be unfair, then those terms would be void under the legislation. The person that had, the, the party that had put those terms into the contract would not be able to rely on them. Then they're unenforceable against the other party. Since it has to be a standard form contract, it means any negotiated contracts don't fall under the unfair contract term provisions. That's right. And we'll get to this in a minute. So the way that the legislation first operated when it came in in 2010 is that if the contract was found to be a consumer contract, and what we mean by consumer contract is that it was with an individual and it was wholly or predominantly, oh, sorry, it was for the supply of um, goods or services or the sale or grant of interest in land. So one of those things. It was with an individual and it was wholly or predominantly for personal, domestic or household use. Then it would be found to be a consumer contract. So it comes under the umbrella of coverage of the Act. So at that point, when it's found to be a consumer contract, the presumption would be that it was a standard form contract unless the party that, unless the other party proved that it wasn't a standard form contract. So the burden is on them to show that it's not a standard form contract. I see. So that means business contracts don't fall under the unfair contract term provisions. So when two parties negotiate a contract and it turns out that one party tries to enforce it in a way that the other party deems to be unfair, they can't refer to the unfair contract term provisions because it's not a consumer contract? That was the case in 2010. So we're okay. still in 2010. Okay. The story has developed since then, though. So I see. Okay, so in 2010, 
it was only consumer contracts. Only consumer contracts, that's right. Yep. Presumption was that it was a standard form contract unless the party looking to rely on the terms could prove that it wasn't a standard form contract and therefore get themselves out of the realm of um, coverage under the unfair contract terms provisions. So that's 2010. The, the test for whether a term is unfair or not, it's basically a three-limb test and this hasn't changed in subsequent years, so it's the same now as what it was in 2010, so I'll go through it now. Once we're satisfied that contract was covered by the legislation, then the court or whoever is looking to enforce the legislation would then look at the term terms of the contract, identify which ones are the offending terms that they, they consider is unfair, and then that term would be put through a three-limb test, which is looking at does that term create a significant imbalance between the rights and obligations of the parties, yes or no? Is the term not reasonably necessary to protect the legitimate interests of the person that's looking seeking to rely on it? And thirdly, would that term cause detriment to one of the parties, either financial or non-financial, if that term was relied on? So that's the three tests. It's the significant imbalance, reasonably necessary to protect legitimate interests, and the cause detriment tests. So the second test, which is the protecting... Yep, that's right. The presumption there is that it is not reasonably necessary and it's up to the party that wants to rely on it to prove that it's reasonably necessary for the to protect their legitimate interests. So they need to then bring forward evidence, make assertions as to firstly what their legitimate interests are and how that term protects it. So that's quite a difficult thing to do. <laughs> if the term doesn't pass all of those three tests, then it will be found to be unfair and can't be relied on. So it's void, can't be enforced. The challenge is probably then to, it's all a question of definition. What is significant when it comes to significant imbalance? What is reasonable when it comes to reasonable necessary? I guess detriment to one of the persons is the easiest one to prove because, of course, that's why they are going after the unfair contract terms because they are arguing that it is detriment to them. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think probably in the case law that I've looked at, I think where the most difficulty come up is around that second test, you know, what's reasonably necessary to protect someone's legitimate interests? What's legitimate? What's reasonably necessary? They're all fairly, um, yeah, and, and uh, the way that I've seen them applied in some of the cases, I don't want to say it's inconsistent, but it's not necessarily straightforward is how I would put it. You don't necessarily get the same answer that you would expect to get every time, I think, depending on what case is being considered. Go back to 2010 when this legislation first came in, it only covered consumer contracts. So that's for individual and for personal household domestic use. So from 2010 onwards, uh, I think the Productivity Commission recommended that there be a five-year review after that legislation gets brought in to see whether it's working or not and take consult with the community about whether that has been effective. So in 2014, so that's uh, four years later, the Treasury opened up a consultation and the subject of that consultation was to sort of take the community's view as to whether that legislation should be extended to small business contracts. That consultation happened and basically the wash up from all of that process was that in November 2016, the unfair contract terms legislation was expanded to not only cover consumer contracts, but now also cover small business contracts. How small do you have to be to fall under small business contracts? Yeah, so that there was a few different tests that would 
need to be used there. So it was if the contract was, was with a business that had less than 20 employees and the upfront price payable under the contract was under $300,000, or as an alternative, if the contract was to run for more than 12 months, the contract price was under $1 million. The upfront price was under $1 million. So if it passed those tests, so that being the employee test and also the upfront price test, it would then be a small business contract under the definition of the legislation and covered in the same way that consumer contracts were previously covered. So that quite significantly expanded the reach of this legislation. That then made it even more relevant for, you know, small businesses on either side of the fence, you know, whether they're providing a contract to their customers to sign for their goods or services or negotiating with a another business for goods and services, sort of this legislation became a lot more relevant for them and also the businesses that at the higher end of town where they're dealing not only with individual customers but small business customers. It obviously uh, expanded to what extent they needed to be cautious about what terms they were putting in front of um, their customers and to ensure that they weren't going to have contracts terms being found to be void all over the place. This would have affected the bank's in a big way, for example. Yeah, now the, the banks, so the financial products side of things is under, <laughs> just to confuse things a little bit, uh, financial products are regulated under a separate piece of legislation, which is the ASIC Act, but the ASIC Act contains rules effectively the same as under the Competition and Consumer Act, but it's just the regulator in for financial products, so contracts to do with financial products, is regulated by ASIC, not the ACCC. So that's just no, no. confusing. Yes, no, that's all right. So that had that expanded regime came in in November 2016. Treasury again reviewed the effectiveness of those new provisions only two years down the track. So they again opened up consultation, uh, received submissions 2018. As a result of the submissions that they received, Treasury then put forward another consultation where they were proposing to enhance the unfair contract terms legislation, I guess taking into account what people had raised as issues with the current legislation. They then proposed a set of ways to perhaps address that and took industry feedback, feedback on that. Yeah. So that consultation only closed in March 2020, nearly 80 submissions back on that. And, and then Corona the, came. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it was right around that time, wasn't it? <laughs> I think they've still pushed on, though, to their credit. So the main issues came up in the submissions. You've already touched on some of the issues, the practical issues. It's There was no clear definition in the legislation about what a standard form contract is. So, you know, that question, does it cease to be a standard form contract if only one term is negotiated between the parties? Even when it's a contract between a small business and somebody else, even for small business contracts, it still needs to be a standard form contract. That's right. If even one clause is negotiated, then the unfair contract term provisions don't apply. Potentially, but I guess the wording in the legislation isn't necessarily clear about that. It talks about things that a court may take into account when determining whether it's a standard form contract, but it doesn't say definitively, this is, this isn't. And so I, that was one of the main issues that came up in the submissions back is that what we as a business may consider not a standard form contract, someone else might consider is a standard form contract. And therefore, 
and that's the difference between coming under this legislation and not. So it's it's pretty critical thing to get right. So section 27 of the Australian Consumer Law, a few factors that a court can take into account in considering whether it's a standard form contract being whether one of the parties has most or all of the bargaining power, whether the there was any discussion between the parties before the contract was prepared, whether in effect contract was put forward on a sort of take it or leave it basis whether one party really is given an effective opportunity to negotiate on the terms of the contract or not. So these were all factors that a court could consider in reaching its conclusion as to whether it's standard form contract. There's no definitive test saying this isn't. From what you're saying, I have the impression that the unfair contract provisions mainly apply when a small business contracts with a large business, but it doesn't apply when two small businesses negotiate something with each other. The, the main aim of the legislation is to protect small businesses and consumers. That's right. But there's no, if a small business is putting forward standard form contracts, and the terms unfair, that even if they're contracting with another small business, they would be caught by this legislation. There's no exemption as such from small businesses um, being caught under the legislation as the offending party. I'll just cover a couple other things that the submissions, the, the issues that were raised in these submissions back to the consultation about how these are working in practice. So there was the issue about this, the definition of standard form contracts that it's not clear. The other difficulty that uh, industry raised was how are we as a business meant to work out whether we're dealing with a small business or not? The test is if that business has 20 employees. We, we don't have access to their payroll. How are we ever meant to get to the bottom of that when dealing with our contracts? It's not an effective test and it's hard to apply. It would require us to dig into the detail of the other businesses payroll, which we don't think is a relevant or appropriate test to gauge whether this legislation applies or not. So that was another issue that people on, so probably the, the businesses on the bigger end of town were raising. They're like, this is just not practical. Could the answer to that be, we just don't do unfair contract terms? Yeah, potentially. <laughs> But I guess then the test for determining what is unfair and what's not are by no means, you know, Clear. black and white. So yes. I guess they're looking to head off any issues to the best of their ability. But the more certainty that can be brought into some of these definitions, the better is what some of these um, businesses um, and industry rep representatives were um, saying. Um, another criticism of the current framework was that the remedies available where there is an unfair contract term are very narrow. So it, it's basically the term is void and unenforceable and it doesn't leave really any discretion on the court to determine what is an appropriate remedy in the circumstances. So it's sort of a one-size-fits-all type outcome when really that may not necessarily be the best outcome in a particular situation. The other issue that was raised was that there's no ability for the ACCC to seek effectively pecuniary, well, sorry, like civil penalties. So that's where the, the business that's consistently putting forward and relying on unfair terms with its customers, the ACCC wants them to be penalised so that it deters the bad actors out there and I guess makes it a bit of an example of what can happen if businesses don't comply with this legislation. At the moment, they don't really have the power to seek penalties being imposed against the businesses that are really the, the bad actors in the space. So they were the main criticisms. Following that, that consultation and the submissions that were received, November last year, 
So consultation finished March last year, 2020. In November 2020, all of the state and territory ministers met again, as they did a few, you know, th all those years ago, and agreed that they were going to strengthen the current regime based on the uh, the main outcomes from that consultation pro process and had have undertaken to basically introduce, again, a range of some uniform legislation that's applicable federally that tightens up how that operates. So we're currently uh, waiting for some new legislation to be drafted and be put in place. And the real changes that are proposed with that legislation is that there'll be a more certain definition of what is a standard form contract the test for what is a small business and therefore what parties are covered by this legislation will be changed. So instead of the employee count being 20 employees, it'll be 100 employees, an annual turnover of less than $10 million. And there's no test to do with the upfront contract price payable, you might remember. Yes. Yeah. yeah so that's it was been removed. 1300000 That's right. Contract price. Yeah. That's right. As I understand it, that test for what is a small business will be more in line with the sorts of tests that you would see in determining small business concessions for CGT. You'd probably be able to um, confirm or deny that. <laughs> but the idea is that it's a more uniform test that's more easily recognised in other applications that people can more easily rely on and apply. Yes. At the moment, it doesn't ring a bell with respect to small business CGT concessions because those concessions don't refer to any employee numbers and the turnover test is 2 million and not 10 million. But they both refer to the turnover, so there's some similarity. Yeah, maybe that's what the similarity was. I wasn't wasn't across the detail of those tests, but yeah, it's um, the idea was that it would be a test that was more easily assessed by the person that's offering the contract. The other thing that is uh, likely going to be changed is um, expansion of the remedies available, which I've already been through. Yes, yeah, so as we've been discussing, the unfair contract terms legislation, the scope of it has evolved over time. It's still evolving. We are still waiting for some draft legislation to come out uh, this year, which takes into account the feedback that industry provided at the end of 2020. We expect that that will result in the legislation being further tightened up in that hopefully some terms will be a little bit clearer. And it may also mean that businesses, small businesses that weren't previously protected by the provisions will actually be protected and they can rely on those provisions in seeking to negotiate or get out of particular terms that would otherwise have applied in their contracts. And also what it, I guess what it means for businesses is that very much the looming possibility that the ACCC will soon be empowered to impose civil penalties on those businesses that consistently and inappropriately incorporate unfair terms into their standard form contracts. So that's just something to be aware of and to um, keep your eye out for if you're in business and in the habit of um, preparing and presenting standard form contracts to your customers. So yeah, just to recap on the, the main test, it's really whether there's a consumer contract or small business contract in place. If there is, whether it's standard form, that will then get you within the protection regime. And then the question is, looking at the particular terms that are in that standard form contract, are they unfair? And that's by reference to the three-limb test. You know, was there a significant imbalance in the rights and obligations of the parties? 
was the term not reasonably necessary to protect the legitimate interests of the business looking to rely on it? And would the term cause, sorry, not even significant, would it cause detriment, either financial or non-financial, to a party if it was relied on? They're the main uh, take-home messages. (laughs) Welcome back. So to determine whether the unfair contract term provisions apply, you need to ask three questions. Number one, are you a small business? Sorry to butt in. This is correct. Yes. Are you a small business? But it is only half of the question. When Simone Daniels reviewed this episode, she rightly pointed out that the unfair contract terms don't just apply to small business contracts, but also to consumer contracts. And just to refresh your memory, consumer contracts are contracts that are for the provision of goods or services or an interest in land with an individual and wholly or predominantly for personal, household or domestic use. So if you have those three things, provision of goods or services or an interest in land with an individual and wholly or predominantly for personal, household or domestic use, then you have a consumer contract and consumer contracts also fall under the unfair contract term provisions. So the first question needs to be, is it a small business contract or a consumer contract? And so now to the second question. Number two, is this a standard form contract? And number three, and this is the most difficult of them all, does the contract pass the three limb test? So is there an imbalance of power? Is there no legitimate interest to protect? And is a contract term detriment to you? If you can answer all three questions with yes, then the unfair contract term provisions might help you. In the next episode, episode 303, Simone Daniels will walk you through a specific case and see whether and how the unfair contract term provisions might apply. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you on the next episode. <laughs>